Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation, for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders, with your host Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for Social Transformation. Today's episode is truly a blockbuster episode. You're going to learn things today that will truly blow your mind. I mean, I promise you, you will forever remember today's episode, and it will set the stage for the next sequence of episodes in our series. Today, you're going to discover how most modern social discourse, whether we're talking about race unity, world peace, the environment, women's rights, I mean, most of the main discourses of our age, you're going to discover how all of these were heavily influenced by their interaction with Abdu'l-Bahá and the generation he inspired. You're going to discover how key features of these discourses even today, find their origin in the early history of our faith. Now, I know that sounds like a big claim. It's a massive claim, and that's why I say that you're going to be blown away by what you discover today. And today's episode is also blockbuster for another reason, because you're going to hear from many of the Baha'i world's most prominent scholars. Now, just a quick warning, today's episode will run longer than our normal episodes, running just shy of an hour. There's just so much ground to cover, but I promise you, the journey is worth the squeeze. So today, we're going to explore a history of Baha'i approaches to society building by focusing on Abdu'l-Bahá's example and the generation inspired by his direct influence. Now, for those of you less familiar with the Baha'i faith, we should start today's adventure with a little bit of background. Baha'u'llah, of course, was the founder of the Baha'i faith. Baha'is view him as a manifestation of God, someone who received and shared direct revelations from God with humanity, revelations which form the basis of our faith. And Baha'u'llah shared his teachings as a prisoner. He spent over 40 years of his life as an exile and prisoner, moving from prison to prison until he ended up in the prison city of Akka in the Holy Land, which at the time was part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, Abdu'l-Bahá, who I referred to earlier, was the oldest son of Baha'u'lláh, and he plays a central role in the Baha'i faith. He was appointed by Baha'u'lláh as the center of his covenant, the person that Baha'is could turn to following his ascension for guidance and for the interpretation of his writings. This is an entirely unique role in religious history. And Abdu'l-Bahá's ministry, guiding the community following the passing of his father, was indispensable in shaping the evolution of the Baha'i faith as we understand it today. Now, Baha'u'llah used many titles in referring to Abdu'l-Bahá. He shared Abdu'l-Bahá as a gift to humanity. And one of these titles was the perfect exemplar. In other words, we have in Abdu'l-Bahá the perfect example for how to live our lives. 
So naturally, it's only fitting that we should strive today to look at Abdu'l-Bahá's example in society building. What can we learn from how Abdu'l-Bahá approached society building? Now, there are a few additional things you should know about Abdu'l-Bahá before we dive into today's stories. First, it's important to remember that for most of his life, really almost all of his life, Abdu'l-Bahá, like his father, was an exile and a prisoner. He began this exile at the age of nine and wouldn't be released from his imprisonment until he was 64 years old. So it's important to situate today's narrative within this context. For most of his life, he's making his contributions to society as an exile and as a prisoner. I mean, clearly, that imposes some very unique constraints on his opportunities to contribute, right? And second, we're going to talk a lot about Abdu'l-Bahá's famous trip to the West, his trip to Europe and the United States around 1912. As we explore these travels, keep in mind that he was 67 years old at the time and that he spoke in Persian using translators. So you can imagine that this introduces other challenges in terms of his public speeches. So these are some further constraints. And finally, with the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, Abdu'l-Bahá's ability to travel and correspond was entirely curtailed, yet even more constraints. So we're talking about the contributions of a prisoner who couldn't travel until he was 67, and even then could only travel for a very short window of a year or two. I think keeping these constraints in mind makes the story of his contributions even more remarkable. Now we're going to explore Abdu'l-Bahá's contribution to society building, to both public discourse and social action, across a number of different arenas that are still, even today, reflective of the real needs for society building, across racial unity, economics, education, the empowerment of women, world peace, the environment, governance, and more. You'll see just how extensive his influence was, both in being substantive and enduring. So we're going to start this journey by exploring Abdu'l-Bahá's influence on the race unity discourse in America. But first, some context. Let's first understand the world Abdu'l-Bahá encountered, particularly during his travels throughout the United States. The America that Abdu'l-Bahá arrived in back in 1912 was a truly racist society. Yes, slavery had been abolished, but so many of the gains that followed were almost immediately whittled away, leaving most of black America, particularly in the American South, with no vote, few rights, and terrorized by horrific acts committed by people who knew they would face no criminal prosecution. And there was an intellectual dimension to the racism, where in previous intellectual circles, people may have once been denouncing slavery, these same circles were cultivating a truly racist discourse in the post-Civil War era, one that often saw black rights as having already gone too far. This legitimized racism. And there was a religious dimension to this as well. Churches which may have once advocated for the abolition of slavery were now entirely silent on questions of race. This resulted in a despiritualization of how white America 
saw black America. It meant that the oppression of black America was no longer seen as a moral dilemma. So the discourse of the day across both public and intellectual circles often justified racism, and the religious discourse of the day simply turned a blind eye. I share this background with you so that you can understand the America that Abdu'l-Baha encountered during his travels in America in 1912. Auburn University professor, Dr. Guy Emerson Mount, helps us contextualize the audience that Abdu'l-Baha spoke to at the time. Here's Dr. Mount. Let's remember, Abdu'l-Baha arrives, they're formerly enslaved peoples he's talking to. He's talking to people who were property in the beginning portions of their lives. That's the, the level of divergence between Abdu'l-Baha's message. There were people still trying to bring slavery back. There were people still that thought it was a mistake right, to end slavery, that slavery ending was a bad thing. Of course, Abdu'l-Baha spoke extensively on the subject of race unity. He spoke at black colleges, at churches, at public halls, and he always insisted that these venues could not segregate during his talks, even though in some places that was illegal. Just speaking at such venues was often hugely controversial. It made waves. And perhaps the biggest wave of all, his most impactful speech, was to the fourth annual convention of the NAACP, the primary arena bringing together those seeking racial equality. Abdu'l-Baha's talks, particularly those addressing race unity, were extensively covered by the black press. In fact, a number of the leading black journalists of the day actually embraced the faith. So Abdu'l-Baha's talks got extensive coverage in the black press. And Baha'is like Louis Gregory spoke to tens of thousands of African Americans. Here's Dr. Robert Stockman, who's written a number of books on the early American believers, describing Louis Gregory's speaking tours. Then, of course, we have Louis Gregory's frequent trips to the South, where he spoke especially to historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. I should add that he also spoke to black business associations and other organizations of African Americans. And so Louis Gregory was frequently being invited by groups like that to speak. And so certainly they would have heard of the faith through Louis Gregory and his, his efforts. That may even have been a bigger influence than the Chicago Defender and the crisis because he would have reached tens of thousands of people, not just by a quick skim of an article, but listening to him speak for half an hour or so. And so I think that likely is, is a, a major uh, source of, of Baha'i influence on the development of the African-American community in the country. And let's not forget the contributions of the white American Baha'i community. The white Baha'i believers of this time interacted and engaged extensively with black America. In fact, soon Baha'is were regularly hosting race amity conferences all across America and black activist groups participated extensively in these conferences. So you see a picture of the highest level of interaction in the race discourse between the nascent American Baha'i community and black America. And all of this had its effects. At this time in history, among the black intelligentsia, the Baha'i faith was extremely well known. 
most black leaders of the day would have known and understood the Baha'i views on race unity and would have been engaging with these ideas in their own discourses. It's truly hard to imagine a higher level of interaction with the Baha'i ideas. It's something black America was truly talking about. Now, let me give you a sense of just how influential this all was. Princeton scholar Dr. Cornell West claims that Baha'is played a key role in the history of America's civil rights movement. When you talk about race, legacy, the white supremacy, uh, there's no doubt that when, when the history is written, the true history is written in the history of this country, uh, the Baha'i faith will be one of the leaven in the American loaf that allowed the democratic loaf to expand because of the anti-racist witness of those of Baha'i faith. So that uh, there is a real sense in which uh, a Christian like myself is profoundly humbled before Baha'i brothers and sisters and the Dizzy Gillespie's and the Elaine Locks and so forth. Now, many decades later, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that famous icon of civil rights, gave a speech in which he highlighted the contributions of two key black philosophers. He said this, we're gonna let our children know that the only philosophers that lived were not Plato and Aristotle, but W.E.B. Du Bois and Alan Locke came through the universe. Now, who are Du Bois and Locke? Well, W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, and he played a key role in debunking the scientific, racist, post-Reconstruction histories I talked about earlier. He's the most important black thinker of his time. Similarly, Elaine Locke, his first name, by the way, is spelled A-L-A-I-N, well, Locke was the father of what became the Harlem Renaissance. This was an explosion of artistic expression celebrating black culture. It marks a significant turning point, the beginnings of what we would now think of as a black pride movement. Both Locke and Du Bois were heavily influenced by Abdu'l-Bahá and his talks in America. In fact, Locke actually became a Baha'i, something he was sometimes criticized for among black intellectuals. And Du Bois's wife became a Baha'i, and he interacted extensively with the Baha'i community throughout his life, often speaking at Baha'i summer schools and events. And there are particular strands of Du Bois's work, his commitment to nonviolence, his framing of what we now think of as affirmative action. These are strands that may well have been influenced by this interaction with the faith. We'll explore that theme further in an upcoming episode. And the work of Locke and Du Bois continues to shape the race discourse even today. Black pride, affirmative action, nonviolence. I mean, these are the cornerstones of the civil rights movement even today. And the faith is clearly interacting with the evolution of these ideas. It's hard to precisely define just how much, but it's clear that Baha'is are intimately interacting in the very shaping of these themes and ideas. So we see among the generation at the time of Abdu'l-Bahá's visit to America, this profound engagement in society building around the race unity discourse. And we see it having an incredibly profound impact at the very dawn of the civil rights movement in America. 
at a level that I think most Baha'is really aren't aware of. And it's an influence that continues to shape race discourse even a hundred years later. Okay, next we're going to explore Abdu'l-Bahá's engagement with the economic issues of his day, particularly in the context of his immediate surroundings in the Holy Land. For Abdu'l-Bahá, particularly in a situation and context, this means farming, as there was no real industry in the Holy Land outside of agriculture at the time. Now, in Abdu'l-Bahá's time, the territory around Akka and the Holy Land was largely desolate. Many villages had been abandoned. There was little security. The terrain was mostly rocky, swampy, or desert, not particularly well suited to farming. But in 1876, the new Ottoman Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, was eager to turn things around. And so he sought to find opportunities to bring these villages back to life. In this context, Abdu'l-Bahá arranged for the purchase of four villages at incredibly low prices. These were the villages of Nurib, Umjuna, Esamra, and Adassieh. Now, these abandoned villages then needed to be settled. So Abdu'l-Bahá encouraged farmers from Iran to move in, settle there, and help bring new farms to life. He did this on incredibly generous terms, providing the farmers with 80% of the proceeds from these farms. Soon, the farms became the envy of the region with orchards of fruit and grains of all kinds. Where there was swampy land, eucalyptus trees were planted, not only helping to absorb the moisture, but also helping prevent the outbreak of diseases like malaria. Many fruits were first introduced to the Holy Land in this way. And Abdu'l-Bahá also cultivated community. The villagers, men and women alike, would consult together about all their affairs, creating a new pattern of community life. And so Abdu'l-Bahá didn't just provide the land, he also provided the guidance. Guidance for both crop and community building. Guidance which made these farms the gold standard of farming in the region. Let's listen to Dr. Roy Steiner, who heads the Rockefeller Foundation's Food and Agriculture Initiatives. Here he's talking about the most famous of these villages, at Asiye. As you know, Abdu'l-Bahá helped create the community of Adesia brought uh, Baha'i farmers from Iran to help establish that. And what was extraordinary about Abdu'l-Bahá's approach was that he combined both the community transformation and the agri-ecological transformation together. Uh, you know, when you look at the type of agricultural techniques that he helped implement, they are really the cutting edge of what we're calling right now regenerative agriculture, which is bringing in diverse crops, uh, specifically bringing in trees that are then combined with, with cereal crops and, and, and vegetables. And this idea of creating ecological harmony that, that reinforce each other is, is really something that, that actually creates the greatest productivity and the greatest resilience in a farming system. So not only did he you know, bring that, which is a real contrast to a lot of the industrial systems we have today. But then he also combined that with this community building efforts of really imp implementing consultation in the village, really bringing gender and, and women's 
voices into the decision-making process. And it's really that combination of an incredibly empowered community that's building its capacity using really advanced scientific approaches to create the most productive system. In fact, Israel's first kibbutz, Deganya, evolved from land purchased in Umjuna, a Baha'i village. So it's highly likely that many of their ideas of community, including participation by men and women, may well have been influenced by the Baha'is in their midst, particularly in light of the success that these Baha'is had achieved. Clearly, the Baha'i influence on the culture of the kibbutz is a subject requiring more research. But again, there's a likely interaction here that had some impact that is still felt today. But Abdu'l-Baha's clearest contribution throughout the region was in his guidance prior to the outbreak of the First World War for farmers to focus on corn and wheat cultivation and to store a portion of that wheat for the upcoming conflict. What we see in his engagement with farmers is that he not only warned people, but he prepared people for it as well. So throughout the region, across the regions of the Sea of Galilee, in Tiberias and Adesia, in all these regions, Abdu'l-Baha actively encouraged the farmers to grow corn and wheat and to store some of that corn and wheat for what he knew would be the coming tempest. And Abdu'l-Baha's reputation among the farming community was such that by this stage, many farmers actually followed his advice. Now, when the war broke out, the Palestinian territory, as it was then known, was placed under a military embargo, completely cutting off their access to food. And the populace was consequently faced with starvation. But it was the corn and wheat, which had gone into storage by farmers who followed Abdu'l-Baha's advice that ultimately saved people, including over 200 camel loads of grain delivered by the Baha'i farmers for the poor in Akka. In fact, in future years, bandits in the region would always allow Baha'i pilgrims to pass through without incident in gratitude for this good deed. Here, Abdu'l-Baha's story has parallels with the story of Joseph in the Bible, where Joseph predicted a famine, stored grain, and saved the populace. So Abdu'l-Baha's guidance literally saved lives. It saved the populace in this part of the Holy Land. And Abdu'l-Baha was ultimately knighted by the British crown for the role he played in saving the population in this way, a title, by the way, which he never used and which he heavily downplayed. So again, we see in Abdu'l-Baha's example the highest level here of contributing to society in economic terms, literally saving people's lives. Abdu'l-Baha also encouraged Baha'is to build schools, particularly in Iran, where the size of the Baha'i community was much larger than other parts of the world. What evolved is truly remarkable, a network of over 60 schools operating throughout Iran that continued educating both Baha'is and others until they were shut down by the government in 1934. And 50 of these schools were operating in rural areas where other forms of education were entirely not available. I mean, this is a remarkable achievement. Now, again, to appreciate just how incredibly profound this is, we need to understand the background context. 
Iran at the time of Abdu'l-Bahá was an almost entirely illiterate society. Just to give you a sense of how illiterate Iran was, in 1950, when we have official measures, the adult literacy rate in Iran was just 13%. 13! And you can assume that this was almost entirely men. Now, by way of contrast, the adult literacy rate among the Baha'i community at that time was near universal, and universal among both men and women. I mean, the contrast is remarkable. In fact, within a generation, this huge contrast emerges. A contrast not only because Baha'is were educated, but also because they had a reputation for integrity. So Baha'is are introducing new industries into Iran, getting good government jobs. The, the material transformation of the community is almost immediate. And there are less obvious influences. After all, the schools were open to all children, Baha'i and otherwise. So many of the nation's educated class had actually attended Baha'i schools. And the status of women within Baha'i households changed. I mean, the impact for the Baha'i community and for others was just so incredibly profound. But imagine yourself in a Baha'i community at the time, perhaps even in a small village, making the decision to launch a school. The logistics of doing so were just so incredibly overwhelming. And most of all, you need teachers. But where do you find teachers, particularly in a largely illiterate society? Well, as Baha'i schools got underway, the graduates of these schools then became the teachers for other schools. And this was a great opportunity for graduating women, since the society of the time didn't really facilitate the hiring of women in conventional jobs. So they could apply their education as teachers. And this was how the school system propagated. It became a self-generative system of learning. What's truly remarkable about the schools is just how extensive they were across the country. Let's listen to Dr. Mujan Momen, a scholar who is author to a number of books and journal articles about the early Iranian Baha'i community. These schools went right down to the level of fairly small villages. Now, there were schools started by sort of modernist, non-Baha'i Iranian in several of the larger cities like Tehran. There was a, a school, Tabriz, and so on in the large cities. And the missionaries were running a few small schools in some of the Christian villages around Urumia and Tabriz in, in the northwest of the country. But when Baha'i started to feed out these schools into the small villages, that was very much a new thing, that, that Iranians would be establishing modern schools in small towns and villages well before any other Iranians were doing that, and well before the government ever thought of doing that. So much so that, uh, for example, in, in one of the towns, when uh, the Baha'is set up a school in a, a town near, near Shiraz. The governor there said to them, look, we can't even get a modern school established in Shiraz itself. How do you, how do you expect to get a modern school established in, in this small town where, you know, where, in the middle of nowhere? Uh, you know, how are you going to manage that? We can't even do it in Shiraz itself. Of course, due to religious persecution, the Baha'i schools were shut down in 1934 denying education to both Baha'is and wider society, 
and it would be decades before any schooling was again provided to children in many of these smaller towns and villages throughout Iran. But by that stage, universal literacy had already been achieved within the Baha'i community, and so families could play a role in ensuring for the education of their children. It catapulted the community. The transformation of the Baha'i community and its contributions to the society around it truly provide a remarkable chapter in Iranian history and provide a great example of society building. Of course, the theme of the equality of women and men features prominently in Abdu'l-Baha's writings, guidance, and in his speeches. And here, too, we see great impact on the larger society around us. In Iran, of course, Abdu'l-Baha's greatest contribution was in his insistence that the Baha'i schools there needed to teach girls as well as boys. Again, in the context of the society of his day, this was a dramatic contrast at a time when education was simply entirely unavailable for girls. Let's listen here again to Dr. Mujan Momen. Right from the start, girls' schools were considered as important as boys' schools. So more or less as soon as a boys' school was founded, either simultaneously or very shortly afterwards, a girls' school would also be founded. And if that didn't happen, Abdu'l-Bahá would write to the Iranian Baha'is in that locality and say, well done for establishing a school. Now establish a, a girls' school to go along with it. So after a while, the, the, the Baha'is got the message and would always start a girls' school more or less the same time as the boys' school. Now think about just how dramatic this was. In a society where girls had no access to education at all, Baha'i girls soon achieved universal literacy. And remember, this was a contribution to wider society as well, because these schools were open to all people. So this is a massive contribution to equality across the entire Persian nation. In his travels in the West, this theme of the equality of women and men was also a central theme in Abdu'l-Baha's speeches. In fact, he repeatedly advocated for women's suffrage, that women should have the right to vote. But Abdu'l-Bahá also contributed indirectly in influencing key individuals, some of whom actually embraced the faith. And my favorite example here is Phoebe Hurst, who at the time was the wealthiest woman in America and one of its greatest philanthropists. Now, Phoebe embraced the faith and actually organized and funded the first pilgrimage to the Holy Land by Western believers in 1898. There, she met with Abdu'l-Bahá, and she went on to play an incredibly pivotal role in nurturing the early evolution of the Baha'i community in America. When we think of great American women who advocated for women's rights, we're usually thinking about women like Susan B. Anthony and her contributions to winning women the right to vote. But Phoebe represented a different strand of the women's movement. While Phoebe also advocated for women's right to vote, she saw the greater need as being in empowering women in their daily lives. Here's Catherine Jewett Hoganson, author of a number of books about the early American believers. Catherine speaks here about Phoebe's approach to empowering women. 
she didn't like some of the more extreme methods that the suffragettes were using, particularly when she saw them start to resort to more violent means and hunger strikes and, and other kinds of things. She also felt that some of what was coming out of the women's movement was uh, licentiousness, not just a push for suffrage. Whereas Susan B. Anthony thought political change was the way to go. Phoebe, because her husband was a politician and her son was a politician, had no use for politics. She hated politics. And she felt that politics was not going to have the effect that starting a whole series of kindergartens, including kindergartens for African-American kids, which was unheard of at that time, or getting women into university, all of these kinds of things would have more lasting effect than getting a particular political candidate elected. She certainly believed women should have a vote, but she wasn't willing to go through unscrupulous or violent means to attain that goal. Now, Phoebe probably did more to empower American women than any other individual in American history. Now, I know that's a big claim, but we'll explore that theme further in a future episode so you can get a more comprehensive picture of just how significant her contributions were. Now, Phoebe truly empowered women. For example, responding to the oppressive circumstances under which seamstresses were employed, she organized women so that they could provide their own seamstress services, completely bypassing the factories. She was responsible for the admission of women in medical schools and as practicing doctors in hospitals. She was the co-founder of the Parents Teachers Association, the PTA, so that mothers could have a stronger voice in the education of their children. I mean, the PTA is probably the single greatest influence on education in America even today, over a century later. She started the first women's studies program at the University of California in Berkeley. I mean, the list goes on and on. She is, without a doubt, one of the most influential heroines of the women's rights movement in America. And of course, she was a Baha'i. Now, it's hard to know just how someone like Phoebe was ultimately influenced by the faith. There's an interaction with the faith. The faith attracts people who share in its beliefs, and it interacts with them to further shape their beliefs. But the point here really is that Baha'is are interacting with their societies and the social discourses of their day in truly deep and meaningful ways, ways that positively contribute to their societies. So in both East and West, we see this remarkable interaction in empowering women. Another area where Abdu'l-Bahá contributed to society building is in the peace arena. Of course, Abdu'l-Bahá was speaking to the West just two years before the outbreak of the First World War, and he clearly warns his audiences repeatedly about the impending war. Much of the coverage of the mainstream press throughout Abdu'l-Bahá's journeys in both Europe and the U.S. focused on this message of peace. We know these speeches affected a great many people. For example, we know of a professor at Stanford, Albert Léon Gerard, who was in the audience during Abdu'l-Bahá's speech there and went on to contribute to peace studies, later working, for example, on a world constitution. Arthur Dahl interviewed Dr. Gerard in 1958. 
Here, Dr. Garad recalls Abdu'l-Baha's speech at Stanford in 1912. I still remember the, the assembly hall and the two figures that seemed to come from a remote country and remote ages, Abdu'l-Baha in the colorful garments and with a white flowing beard and his interpreter all compact, uh, dark, and with very keen expression. Naturally, I couldn't understand a word of Persian or Arabic, whatever it was. But uh, at the same time, those two managed to create an impression of uh, community. We felt that they were strangers and yet uh, guide and personally in touch with us. What I remember most particularly was the, the benignity of the expression of Abdu'l-Baha. He was not one of God's angry uh, men who desired to consign all others to eternal fire. He was really a father wanting to unite the whole human family. So people were truly moved by Abdu'l-Baha's talks. Abdu'l-Baha also spoke at the annual conference of the International Peace Society in Lake Mahang, and really many key peace thinkers of the day were there. So here too we see great influence in the peace discourse of the day. Now there were a number of people who may have been heavily influenced by these talks and by the Baha'i writings. We know that these had some influence, for example, on President Woodrow Wilson and his efforts in advocating for the League of Nations. We know that Wilson, for example, had a number of Baha'i books in his library. There are even secondhand accounts of him having a small Baha'i book in his coat pocket that he would occasionally reference. His wife and his eldest daughter actually met with Abdu'l-Baha, and his youngest daughter, Eleonora Wilson McAdoo, claimed on more than one occasion that her father's 14 points, the basis for the League of Nations, were directly influenced by the Baha'i faith. So it seems likely that Wilson's 14 points, one of the most influential instruments for peace in the last century, were influenced by the faith. But the full extent of this influence remains something for future historians to really properly research. And there are other initiatives of the day that may have also been influenced in this way, including potentially a number of initiatives by Andrew Carnegie. But perhaps the most enduring contribution in terms of something we still experience today was made by a British major who was also a Baha'i. I'm talking here, of course, about Wellesley Tudor Pohl, who is the individual most responsible for popularizing the moment of silence that is observed in so many nations still today to commemorate the fallen in the First World War. In many nations, this is the most important peace event of the year, reminding people of the horrors of war. So the moment of silence also has its Baha'i influences. And the Baha'is of this time in the United States also began hosting world unity conferences all across the country, advocating for global disarmament and engaging with society in discussions about world peace. And a direct outgrowth of these conferences was the emergence of a peace journal called the World Unity Magazine, which emerged as one of the primary vehicles for the peace discourse in the interwar years. Again, let's listen to Catherine Hoganson talking about 
Horace Holly, and his efforts with the World Unity magazine. He got hold of Abdu'l-Baha's tablet to The Hague and saw that after World War I was over, Abdu'l-Baha said, another big one's coming. And so he and two women who were well-to-do Baha'i businesswomen decided that they ought to start a movement, an anti-war movement, to take the Baha'i ideals and get them into the hands of the general public, but even more so the leaders of thought. Their scheme was to have local chapters set up and to uh, have a magazine. And so they set up the World Unity Foundation and magazine, and it was based in part on a series of World Unity conferences, which had been carried out by the NSA. They're getting Nobel laureates and all kinds of important people submitting articles for it. And they have some really big muckety-mucks. The Supreme Court Justice Charles Evans Hughes. They had John Dewey, the famous philosopher, educator. They had Sigmund Reeve, who was the first president of the Republic of South Korea, as well as a number of prominent thinkers of the time. It was getting a readership of people who were internationally minded and free thinkers. There was a feeling that it was having an impact, but just at the point where it was starting to take off, the Great Depression hit, and suddenly the capital to keep it going until it could be self-sustaining was no longer available. So we see this incredibly strong interaction with the peace discourse of the day, particularly in that interwar period leading up to the Great Depression. Yet another example of the generation of Abdu'l-Bahá's time contributing to the discourse on peace. Now, let's explore another modern-day discourse and that's on the theme of the environment. Now, it's important to remember that in Abdu'l-Bahá's day, there was no real societal discourse around the environment yet. There are strands of it, for example, in Teddy Roosevelt creating national parks, but this is not yet a societal discourse like race unity, peace, or women's suffrage. So there was no real global discourse on the environment at that time. But in fact, the emergence of that discourse largely came about through the contributions of a single Baha'i of that generation. And so we find this Baha'i influence in the emergence of the global discourse on the environment, finding its origins in the work of a remarkable believer, Richard St. Barb Baker. Paul Hanley has written two books about St. Barb Baker and tells us the story of how Baker started this discourse. In 1922, St. Barb was working as assistant conservator of forests in Kenya, but he basically had no budget to do reforestation. And he found out really his real role was kind of facilitating exploitation of the forest. So he, he decided, okay, if I'm going to get anything done in terms of conservation, I'm somehow going to have to get the local people involved in this. So he went to the elders of the Kikuyu tribe and said, you know, we've got to replenish the forests because they're being depleted. And they said, no, that's God's work. God plants the trees. And he said, but we have to help God. And they said, well, what you need to do is maybe have a dance because everything in their culture was, you know, when we plant, we dance, when we harvest, we dance. So he created the dance of the trees. 
and he invited all the youth to come to the dance of the trees. He had a an animal like uh, a bull that he gave to the winner and and bracelets for the girls and and you know whoever won this thing uh it, it was just a way of bringing people out and so they had this dance 1922 so 100 years ago and thousands of people came out thousands of young men and women came out and danced together and then he gave them inspiring talks about the importance of tree planting and they all pledged to plant you know five trees and and do a good deed every day so it was kind of a practical and moral movement he was creating and he called it the men of the trees still exists now called the international tree foundation and so he started this group amongst these young people in kenya and then he decided that well maybe this men of the trees could become an international group so he went back to england started a men of trees there started men of the trees in palestine and started building this movement all over the world eventually over 100 countries had members I think it was probably the first environmental and non-governmental organization in the world on a larger international scale. Now, as you heard, St. Barb Baker founded the Men of the Trees, which more recently changed its name to the International Tree Foundation, which has gone on to plant literally billions of trees worldwide over the course of the past hundred years. Some estimates assume that they may have saved or planted as many as 30 billion trees in that period. And many of the key conservationists that followed were influenced directly by St. Barb Baker. And the billions of trees that they then planted also find their roots back to this remarkable man. It's hard to think of a person that has achieved more for the environment than St. Barb Baker, truly the first to cultivate a global discourse around the environment. So here again, another massive contribution to society, a contribution that again had this enduring impact. Another way that Abdu'l-Bahá contributed to society was an advice he regularly gave shaping approaches to governance, particularly governance with integrity. Now, some of this relates to his immediate circumstances. In the localities in which he lived, Abdu'l-Bahá quickly emerged as someone that leaders could turn to for advice and assistance. Sometimes this was in the role of mediator, helping resolve differences between individuals. Sometimes it was in giving advice. In fact, leaders throughout the region would often turn to him for guidance. But Abdu'l-Bahá's greatest example of contributing to society building in this way is seen in his interaction with political reform in Iran. Now, when we talk about Abdu'l-Bahá's writings, we're usually talking about compilations of tablets and letters, or perhaps of written records of talks that he gave, or, or perhaps of his responses to questions during interviews. But Abdu'l-Bahá actually wrote three books, two of which specifically focus on political reform. Now, the first of these is well known to Baha'is. It's, of course, The Secret of Divine Civilization. Lesser known, perhaps, is his Treatise on Politics, a book which hasn't yet been translated and released, but which the Baha'i World Center promises will be released imminently, perhaps even this year. 
Both of these books were written anonymously so that they wouldn't curry favor for Abdu'l-Bahá with political leaders, and both were circulated widely in Iran by the Baha'i community. We'll explore the full story of the circumstances under which these were written in our next episode. Suffice it for now to say that there was a real hunger and need for reform in the Persian nation at the time, where corruption and mismanagement were rampant. And so, in these works, Abdu'l-Bahá addresses the remedies to these issues, advocating for a range of political reforms. Now, there is no doubt that Abdu'l-Bahá's work and the work of the Baha'i communities of the day were absolutely instrumental in bringing about major reforms, including in bringing about Iran's first parliament, although this ultimately failed, as Abdu'l-Bahá predicted it would, because the reformers ignored so much of his advice. To be clear, there were reformers driving many of these initiatives. But as Baha'i historian Dr. Mujan Momen explains, the influence of the Baha'is was far more extensive, particularly outside of the capital city of Tehran. The reformers were probably sort of, well, let's say a thousand people at most among the intellectuals in the cities in Iran and the larger cities at that, not, not in the smaller cities. Whereas the Baha'is were hundreds of thousands of people spread right across Iran, right down to the village level. So these sort of principles were being advocated much more thoroughly and effectively throughout Iran by the Baha'is than they were by these intellectuals who had very limited audience, very limited readership, what they were publishing and, and printing. So I would argue that the Baha'is were much more effective at getting these ideas infiltrated into the general population and bringing the ideas of reform to the population than these elitist, well-educated, but very elite reformers were doing. Now, there can be no doubt that many of the reforms that ensued, the beginnings really of some level of democratic representation in Iran, finds its roots in these works of Abdu'l-Bahá. We can see that in the substance of the reforms. While the reformers, for example, were predominantly based in Tehran, it was the Baha'is throughout Iran that brought the needs of other towns and villages into this reform process. Consider, once again, these comments by Dr. Momen. You can see it also, for example, when the reformers started to sort of put forward their list of demands to the Shah, one of the things that they demanded was that in each locality a house of justice should be established. They called it Adalah Khaneh, but that's a straightforward translation of Beit Al-Ad, which is the house of justice. So, you know, where did they get that idea from? <laughs> it wasn't this idea that in every locality you had to have a house of justice, and this would be the sort of the place that people would turn to for justice in each locality. The, uh, this was in contrast to the, to the situation then prevailing in Iran, which was that the governors would just do whatever they liked, and whether it was just or not was irrelevant. It was what the will of the governor that prevailed. Uh, and now the reformers were demanding that there should be a house of justice in each locality and that people could turn to that house of justice and get justice for themselves, even if that was you know, against high officials in the locality. So those sorts of ideas, I think, 
you can argue that with, with a lot of evidence that these sorts of ideas were coming to these reforms from the Baha'is with whom they were having these discussions. It's hard to imagine any more direct evidence of the Baha'i influence than this, that the first democratic institutions were conceived as houses of justice. I mean, that's clear Baha'i terminology. However, for reasons we'll discuss in our next episode, Abdu'l Baha became concerned with the direction of the reforms that evolved, viewing them as misguided and counterproductive. Consequently, he encouraged the Baha'is who were championing this process to then disengage. And the Baha'i community did exactly that, then channeling their energies instead into other kinds of society building, like the schools we talked about earlier. Again, it's a remarkable chapter in this story, which we'll explore further in our next episode. Our point today, though, is that the birth of democratic institutions in Iran, taking various forms over the years that followed, finds its origins in the writings of Abdu'l-Bahá and in the Baha'i community's efforts that followed. So again, we see in Abdu'l-Bahá's example the highest level of contribution to society around discourses on governance, integrity, and political reform. Now, it's important to remember that in this episode, we've only scratched the surface. There were Baha'i communities around the world, each making their contributions to society building in their time and place. Here's Dr. Robert Stockman again. So the Baha'is were doing these kinds of social and economic development projects from a very early time. And I think it's quite interesting that now we're beginning to realize that any efforts to spread the faith has to rely on social action, public discourse, and community building. So it's like the three-legged stool. And even back in the first decade of the 20th century, the Baha'is were kind of trying to construct the three-legged stool as well, you might say. So there's a lot of sort of continuation of what we're doing today in the efforts of the Friends in the early days. So society building was clearly a focus for the Baha'is of Abdul Baha's time. It may have been a nascent community, but it was a nascent community highly engaged in society building at a level we really haven't seen matched ever since, and with an enduring legacy that we can all truly be inspired by. So there you have it. Aren't you blown away when you realize just how amazing Abdu'l-Bahá's contributions were to society building? Contributions which still shape these discourses over a hundred years later. Features which form part of our everyday discourse today around affirmative action, black pride, nonviolent approaches to civil rights, the Parents Teachers Association, the culture of the kibbutz, commemorating the fallen with a minute of silence, women's empowerment, tree planting, the global discourse on the environment, a continued hunger for integrity in politics. I mean, it's truly remarkable. I gotta tell you, in doing the background research for this episode, I mean, this just took my breath away. It's just so incredibly inspiring. So you can exhale now. Whew, what a ride, right? 
Now, you heard brief snippets of interviews I conducted with a number of eminent Baha'i scholars. These scholars were all incredibly generous with their time. Most of these interviews ran for one or two hours each, and they were packed with amazing insights, insights I simply didn't have airtime for in this overview episode. But you'll be pleased to know that the next set of episodes will explore these themes in much greater depth. So you'll hear more from these eminent scholars. You'll hear more about Abdu'l-Bahá and the race discourse and the remarkable interaction that followed with Black America. And you'll hear more about the governance reforms that Abdu'l-Bahá advocated for in Iran and Abdu'l-Bahá's warnings for the future, warnings which have clearly played out in today's Iran, and so much more. So there's so much to look forward to. A quick production note, I want to extend a huge shout out of gratitude to each of the Baha'i scholars who shared so selflessly with me in order of their appearance. Dr. Guy Emerson Mount, Dr. Robert Stockman, Dr. Roy Steiner, Dr. Mujan Momen, Catherine Jewett Hoganson, and Paul Hanley. I'd also like to thank Dr. Christopher Buck for identifying the quote I referenced from Martin Luther King Jr and Dr. Shea Rosen for his research on the Baha'i villages I referenced in this episode. I learned a great deal from these eminent scholars, and you're in for a real treat as we get to hear them in much more detail in our upcoming episodes. And also, I want to express my deep gratitude to the U.S. Baha'i National Archives Office for locating and sharing that Arthur Dahl interview with Dr. Garad from 1958. And of course, I want to thank you for joining the conversation for social transformation. So don't miss our next incredible episode, which features extensive interviews with Dr. Mujan Momen on Abdu'l-Bahá and governance. That's next time on Society Builders. Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting, it's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builders Ooh. 
civilization, oh. the social transformation, oh. society builder.